The scripture reading for this morning is from Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, and I want to encourage you uh, to grab the Bible that's in front of you. The page number that you'll be looking for is page 852, and I encourage you, even though it's going to be on the screens, just to have your Bibles open and uh, be able to follow along throughout the course of the service. So page 852 in the Bible that uh, is in front of you in the pew, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out. To crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to review where we were two weeks ago, where we left off in Mark's gospel, was looking at the trial in chapter 14 and verses 51 and following, the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Uh, You'll remember that Judas had betrayed Jesus. This is right after Jesus' time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Judas betrays Jesus into the hands of uh, an angry mob who had come with clubs in order to, you know, quote-unquote, arrest Jesus, and then bring him before the Sanhedrin, this council of religious leaders, uh, scribes and um, uh, Pharisees and uh, other ruling religious authorities at that time. Um, They bring him before this, uh, this court, the Sanhedrin, And they had also brought a number of false witnesses. You see, the goal was to convict Jesus. Even though everything about that trial was not in accord with Jewish law, they brought in false witnesses with the hope that they could convict Jesus based on the testimony of at least two witnesses, which was required by Jewish law. But these false witnesses couldn't even agree on, you know, coming up with a story in which two of them could say the same thing about something that Jesus hadn't actually done. 
And so then the high priest, of course, takes matters into his own hands. He asks Jesus a direct question, are you the Messiah, essentially? Jesus says, I am. And the high priest declares that Jesus is guilty and deserving of death because of blasphemy, because of claiming to be God. Now, you'll remember again from two weeks ago that the Sanhedrin was meeting very early in the morning. They had to get Jesus to Pilate if Jesus was going to be on a cross by sundown. Uh, the Roman, uh, you know, procreator, uh, pro, pro, prefect, sorry, the Roman prefect Pilate, uh, who was staying at the governor's home, was in town for the uh, time of the Passover to kind of keep the peace. He, along with other prefects um, before him, would only take court cases in the morning, early in the morning, and then the rest of the afternoon was kind of the time when, you know, Roman gentlemen had their time of leisure. Uh, and so they tried Jesus really before daybreak, again, violating another uh, Jewish law, and then they quickly got him before Pilate in order to have Pilate, they hoped, convict Jesus as worthy of death. Now, the passage that I just read, if you've been a Christian for a while, or maybe even if you're not a Christian, but you were raised in the church, is a very familiar one. And that's part of the problem as we read it. It's familiarity. What I hope to do this morning, to some degree, is in a sense defamiliarize you with the text by giving you a little bit more of the background, what's going on behind the scenes. Why did the religious leaders do what they did and say what they said to Pilate? Why is it that Pilate responded the way that he did? Why did the crowd, why were they even there? And why did they ask uh, for Barabbas instead of Jesus? And then ultimately, why didn't Jesus respond? Why didn't he make a defense against the false accusations that were being uh, presented about him? So in other words, I want to do everything I can to help us read the story with a fresh set of eyes. So first, we're going to review the story. But then, because it is a biblical narrative, because it is a story, I want to challenge you to consider where you see yourself in this story. Do you see yourself with the religious leaders? Do you see yourself with Pilate? Do you see yourself with the crowd or, or with Barabbas? So we'll take a few minutes and kind of reflect on that. Where do we see ourselves in this text? And then we'll end by asking ourselves, as we have to ask ourselves when it comes to any part of the Bible, how should we live in light of this? And my hope there is that we'll begin to look not at the bruised and broken and bloodied body of Jesus, but from there to the glory when he returns. So first, we'll look at what's happening in the story. Secondly, where we're meant to see ourselves in it. And then third, how to live in light of it. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We thank you that we're able to be here this morning. We thank you that you've preserved this story, this true story, this this historical event that happened in which the king of glory was beaten, was scourged, was falsely tried and convicted and would ultimately be led away to the cross. Lord, help us by your spirit to learn from this and not just learn but be moved. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
So first, what's happening in the story? The religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. You see that in verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Why the consultation? They just convicted him. Just in the pre-dawn hours, they had convicted Jesus of blasphemy. Now they're consulting together, trying to come up with some kind of a game plan before they lead him on to Pilate. So that Pilate, as the local Roman prefect, would be able to decide whether or not that Jewish verdict of deserving of death would actually be carried out. Because remember, as we said two weeks ago, just because that Jewish court had rendered that verdict, they couldn't execute it. That right of the sword, if you will, was held by the Roman rulers. Only they could pass a death sentence. So the Jewish Sanhedrin could bring that result of their trial, you know, their conviction, to Pilate. But then Pilate had to essentially undergo a second trial in which Pilate would hear what the accusers were saying. In this case, the Sanhedrin who was coming to them coming to him, and then Pilate would consult with his advisors. He was the lone judge. He was judge and jury, but he had legal advisors with him. He might consult with them. He might just render a judgment on his own, and then he would declare whether or not the verdict of the Sanhedrin would stand or whether or not the verdict would be overturned, and then he would, if he said it would stand, give the order for the accused to be crucified. Okay, so that's the way it was going to play out. The Sanhedrin gathers together before they actually take Jesus to Pilate. Why? Because they knew that Pilate would not care that they had convicted Jesus of blasphemy. That's no threat to Rome. The only thing that Pilate would have considered worthy of death was if they were bringing to him someone who was an actual threat to Roman rule. This guy who claims to be the God of these Jewish people that Pilate would hold his nose whenever he was around them, he didn't care. He would dismiss that out of hand. So they get together and say, okay, how, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to kind of, you know, gin the results of our trial, if you will, so that we can say he actually is an insurrectionist. He's actually a threat to Roman rule. Now, again, the idea of a Messiah in the Jewish concept, in the, in the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, and in the expectation at large was that this Messiah would be one who brings deliverance, one who brings God's rule. And of course, what the Old Testament tells us is something entirely different than the expectation that existed in Jerusalem on that day. Remember, Palm Sunday was just five days prior. They're laying palm leaves, which were a sign of the insurrection. Jesus, we expect you to be our political savior. So Jesus has just confirmed to the high priest that he is the Messiah, These Jewish scholars knew what kind of Messiah to be expecting, but they also knew what the crowd had been expecting, political deliverance, kicking out the Romans, and so they present to Pilate an accusation. He said he's king of the Jews. Jesus, of course, never said he was king of the Jews, and the word Messiah doesn't even mean king of the Jews. There's no concept of a king of the Jews coming as the Messiah, But that's the charge they levied. And so now Pilate's like, whoa, okay, I better hear this. 
There could be something here. We know that that's what happened because of Pilate's question. Are you the king of the Jews? Again, the way it would unfold, the accusers would come, they would make the accusation. Pilate was judge and jury. He would say to the accused, is this true? He did not say to Jesus, are you a blasphemer? He said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? So they brought this, yet again, false accusation before the Roman governor Pilate. That's the consultation they have before, you know, they, they come. And then they bring Jesus. And there's this interesting confrontation between Pilate and Jesus in verses 2 and 4. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made, or made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus gave this oblique answer. You have said so. He doesn't say I am the king of the Jews. He doesn't say I'm not the king of the Jews. He says you have said so. Which commentators' best you know, anticipation or, or interpretation of what that means is that Jesus is saying I am a king, but not the kind of king you think I am. And that's kind of further confirmed when you read in John's gospel of a further interaction between Pilate and Jesus in which Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus refuses to respond. Pilate says, why won't you respond to all these accusations? Now we know from Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 23, Luke kind of fills out the story a little bit more. We know that these, uh, these scribes and that the Sanhedrin was accusing Jesus of misleading our nation. He's misleading our nation, they said to Pilate. He is saying that we don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. That would have, you know, gotten Pilate's attention. And then when Pilate, you know, wasn't convinced that he was in fact a threat, they would later say he's saying that he's king, just like we have recorded here in Mark's gospel. But Luke says that Pilate was still skeptical. And so Pilate, as we see here back in Mark's gospel, is amazed. He's like, why won't you answer? We learn from verse 10 of Mark 15 that Pilate knew what was going on. He knew the Sanhedrin was just jealous. It was because of envy, we learn in verse 10, that they brought Jesus and delivered him up to Pilate. He knew that Jesus was not any kind of threat to Rome. We know from Matthew's gospel that there was this interaction between Pilate and his wife, Pilate's wife came to him as all this was unfolding and said, have nothing to do with that man. I've had a dream concerning this righteous man. That's how she referred to Jesus. And so you can, you can kind of picture Pilate. Like, I know he's not a threat to Rome. I don't know why he's not responding to these false accusations. They're so blatantly false. My wife is telling me she had a dream about this guy? And I shouldn't have anything to do with him? And here's this crowd making their way down, and here's these chief priests and high priests who we know what they're trying to do. He must have felt confused. I'm not trying to get us to feel sorry for Pilate. Pilate was a ruthless, and yet at the same time, weak ruler. But if you just think about what was unfolding, you know, from, for Jesus' sake, before this ruler... Pilate was beginning to feel trapped. He won't make a defense. 
The accusation's been brought, I'm going to have to convict. And then this crowd comes forward in verses 6 and following. Now the feast, at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked, for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there's a man named Barabbas. All right, so what was happening? It was custom for Pilate to release a prisoner to the Jews at the time of the Passover. Now keep in mind, the time of the Passover was all about celebrating the release of God's people of Israel from bondage, from prison, if you will, in Egypt. And so Pilate came up with this idea, probably to, you know, stoke up goodwill or make it look like he's trying to maintain goodwill between Rome and the Jewish rulers, but, or Jewish people, but probably more to placate them. Because it was often at the time of the Passover, the insurrections would happen. People would start to get agitated. Hey, this is the time when we celebrate our deliverance from, from you know, Egypt's rule over us. And here are these Romans who rule over us. We've got to kick them out. And so, you know, Pilate, kind of the, you know, guy that he was, said, let's throw him a bone. We'll just, we'll release a prisoner. In fact, we'll release the prisoner that they want so that they'll be happy at this time when historically things tend to go a little bit south. And so there's a crowd. It's not surprising that the crowd is there. It's not surprising that they have access to Pilate because these were public trials. That's well known from Roman history. The trials were public. Anyone could observe the crowd is coming. It was the normal time for them to come. It was to be expected that they would ask for a prisoner to be released. So that's unfolding. And Pilate sees an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. Pilate knows he needs to placate the crowd. There's a a mob. (laughs) He's just heard from the Sanhedrin, this Jesus is stirring up the people. All the people think that he's king. Pilate knows this guy's no threat at all. But I can placate the crowd by giving them who I think I know they're going to ask for, which is Jesus, And at the same time, I can stick it in the eye to the Sanhedrin because I know they're trying to use me. And and Pilate, you know, was incredibly anti-Semitic. We've got both Jewish and Roman historians that point to that in terms of who Pilate was and what kind of man he was. And so Pilate thinks, you know, who do you want? I'll give you Jesus. And they ask for Barabbas instead. The religious rulers had stirred up the crowd to get them to ask for another prisoner who was a known insurrectionist, knowing that the crowd at that point had already soured on Jesus. This Jesus isn't a political messiah. Those palm branches that we laid down at the, you know, the, the, um, the triumphal entry and those expectations that we, that we had as we said, Hail Jesus, that... He's no Messiah. And so Pilate, surprisingly, learns something he should have known all along. These Jewish people are not going to agree with me on anything. I am the oppressor. I'm offering them who, they think, who I think they'll want. They've already soured on Jesus, and they're certainly not going to agree with me. So they listen to their religious authority figures who say, ask for Barabbas, and they ask for Barabbas. And so Pilate then has no choice. I give up a prisoner, whatever prisoner they ask for, 
I'm giving them Barabbas. And then he completely abdicates his responsibility and says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they say, crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate delivers him over to be crucified. First, of course, the text tells us he's scourged. He's beaten. Uh, Roman scourging was horrific. It was terrible. The, the instrument that was used was called the flagellum. It was a wooden handle about eight inches long. It had three leather straps, anywhere from 12 to 14 inches long. Each strap was studded with pieces of bone and pieces of lead. And that's what they would use to whip a person. The person would either be tied to a post or just thrown on the ground. They would be stripped completely naked and beaten until the Romans decided to stop because they had no limit on how many times this person could be whipped Historians write about how different people were actually, you know, just their, their, their flesh was flayed away. You were seeing bone because of how horribly they were ripped apart. That's what happened to Jesus. Then he was mocked. We see that in verses 16 through 20. The soldiers led him away. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They, they knew the charge. He's claiming to be king of the Jews. He's being condemned as an insurrectionist. And so let's pretend he is a king. Let's throw a, what was probably a rug around him. And let's take this, this um, palm branch that was nearby, this bush that was common that had long spikes on it, and let's weave together a, thro- a, a crown and let's set that on him, and let's say, "Hail, King of the Jews!" You know, let's give him the greeting that we were supposed to give to you know Roman rulers when they came into town. Let's not kiss him; let's spit at him. He was mocked, and then he was led away to be crucified. Why is this happening? If you were an observer, if you were there, if you were present, if you were watching this unfold, you might be tempted to think, man, this guy got caught up in, in nationalistic fervor. Maybe deep down he wanted to be you know, seen as a Messiah who would deliver Israel. And he just had one bad apple in Judas who ruined the whole plan. Or those religious rulers, you know you can't trust religious people. Look at what happened to him. It could have been any of these things. None of those things were the reason ultimately why this was happening. This was happening because this is how Scripture foretold it would happen. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus had said in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, for the third time we're told that Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he 
will rise. This was happening because this is how it had been foretold it would happen. And it is happening exactly down to the detail of people looking at a broken and bruised and bleeding body and turning away. It's also happening because this is how the true king rules. Again, he never claimed to be king of the Jews. This is the first time that phrase, king of the Jews, pops up in Mark's gospel. And yet you see it not only in the, you know, kind of the backstory, what's happening behind the scenes, indicated by Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews, in verse 2, but you also see it several other places throughout the text as well. You see it in verse 9 of chapter 15. You see, are you the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews in verse 9? You see it in verse 12. Pilate said to them again, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? You see it in verse 18. Hail, king of the Jews. He is the king. He is the true king. Not just of the Jews, but of the whole world. And he is being crucified. This is how the true king rules. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is how the true king will serve his people. Second, and we'll move quicker from here on out. I know it's hot in here. Where do you see yourself in the story? Where do you see yourself in the story? Do you see yourself with the religious leaders? The religious leaders envied the attention that Jesus was getting from the people. We know from elsewhere that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, love the praise of man more than they love the praise of God. Do you? Do you see yourself with Pilate? Matthew 27 tells us that Pilate, out of his amazement, consternation, confusion, fear, finally just washed his hands. I am innocent of this man's blood. I'll have nothing further to do with him. Have you? Do you see yourself with the crowd? The crowd rejected Jesus because he was not the kind of savior they expected. Have you? Do you see yourself with the soldiers? The soldiers mocked the idea that a broken, bleeding man laying on the ground, having been beaten by them, could possibly be king. Do you stand with those in our culture who continue to mock Jesus? Who continue to mock the idea that Christianity could be true? Or do you stand with Barabbas? I hope you stand with Barabbas. Because in Barabbas we see the guilty going free. Because the one who is innocent has taken his place. We're meant to see ourselves. In Barabbas. And then third and finally, how are we meant to respond? How are we meant to respond to this story? And the answer is not by beating yourself up. Now you read this, you may feel this sense of, 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 of guilt and conviction. And if you are not a Christian, let's run with that. Because as sinners, we are ultimately guilty. And this is the payment that was made by God the Son before God the Father that we might be forgiven and set free. But if you are a Christian believer, 
The right response to this passage is not to continue to beat yourself up. It's not to fashion your own, you know, mental flagellums to beat yourself with emotionally or spiritually. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, I came not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, said that there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom. And then in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian... The right response to this story as you read it is not to beat yourself up, nor is the right response to wear yourself out. It is not to wear yourself out. At the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks, Captain Miller, is laying on the bridge dying. And Matt Damon's Private Ryan is there with them. Do you remember what do you remember what Tom Hanks' character said at that moment? earn this. Earn this. Jesus is not laying on the ground beaten. He's not carrying his cross. He's not on the cross saying to you, earn this. Jesus paid it all. What should we do instead? I would say first, wonder at the love wonder at the love that is on display here. This is the groom Jesus laying down his life for his bride, the church. Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, out of love for his father, went to the cross. Wonder at the love that is on display in this passage. Love within the Godhead, love of God for you. Secondly, I would say, love as you've been loved. How should we respond to this text in which we see so viscerally the love of God on display for his people? What is the goal and the ultimate end of this work of Jesus Christ on the cross? It is that we might love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. How should we respond to what we see here? Wonder at the love. Secondly, love as you've been loved. Third, expect and endure persecution. Now just step back for a second and remember who Mark was writing to. Mark was writing to Christians in the first century in Rome, under Nero, would later be under Domitian, brutal emperors, who would be persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, you will stand before, you will be delivered over. You'll be delivered over to councils and authorities. Jesus said of himself in Mark chapter 10, I will be delivered over. He says in Mark chapter 13, you will be delivered over. And Mark is recording this and passing this on to the church in the first century who was being delivered over and reminding them this is what it looks like to follow the way of the cross when you're being falsely accused. Remain silent with your Savior. Look to him for the words that he said that he would supply to give an answer. 
And then fourth and finally, watch for the return of the king in glory. Watch for the return of the king in glory. Wonder at the love. Love as you've been loved. Expect and endure persecution and watch for the king's return in glory. That is not, as you know, where the story ends with Jesus on the ground beaten. Nor is the story ending with Jesus on the cross crucified. Nor does the story end with Jesus resurrected and the tomb rolled away, the stone rolled away from the tomb. Nor does it end with Jesus Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, nor does it end with Jesus as the one mediator between God and man, who Hebrews tells us always lives to make intercession for his people. The story ends with the King, Jesus, returning in glory, with the world, the cosmos, being made new, and us finally being able to be with Jesus. We see him now by faith in the gospel. One day, we will see him face to face. You want to know how to respond to this passage of Mark chapter 15? See yourself in the text as Barabbas. And then see the king, who though in the text is beaten and bloodied and broken, yet is risen and will return. Look to this gospel, Mark's gospel, the gospel as it's presented to us in Scripture, by faith, seeing the glory of Jesus who by his death was lifted up in order to draw all manner of people to himself and then wait in eager expectation for his return. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us a greater vision of the glory of your son Jesus. Do so, O God, as we read our Bibles and consider this glorious gospel, this good news of what Jesus did for us, even in this passage, that, O God, our our hearts are so callous because of sin and and so familiar because we've read it so many times, But, but God, would you help us to remember what's happening here? Love is on display, love like we've never seen anywhere else. Love of a holy God for a a sinful people. Love of a groom for his bride. And then, oh God, would you help us as your son and our savior Jesus has demonstrated for us, would you help us remember how we can respond? Lord, when we're opposed, when we're persecuted, when we're mocked for our faith, Lord, would you help us to remember that we have a savior who went before us, who will come back for us, And who therefore we can follow, even when it means being silent, when falsely accused. And then Lord Jesus, would you help us to remember that though we are those who would have turned our faces away in horror, by your grace we are now those who are looking toward you and waiting for your return in glory. Until that day, keep us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.